0: Morning and then lunch with Jade and his family, and then we had gone to see Julie's brother and sister-in-law and their kids. We're driving back to our hotel and talking about how significant this weekend feels for us. We had, we'd had a season, five to six year window that was really difficult, and we're coming out of that season. There's there's all kinds of ways in which that's behind us, and. This weekend kind of marks a a new beginning. We're talking about that. And I'm just saying how grateful I am for it. And I look up, and there is a restaurant, I think, or a bar, called Rock Bottom. (laughs) And I said, well, it may be a new day. I can still see Rock Bottom from here, though. (laughs) I will forever remember this weekend for that reason. Like, things are new, but we can still see the old. It's not that far away. So if you, if you were here the first service, you know. If you weren't, you don't yet know that I have Pastor Jade's permission to do two talks today, and I've really done two and a half because of leading communion. So the first service is a sermon I preached. This time I'm going to teach. It's, a, it's more of a lecture. And so if, if there are things that don't quite make sense, watch the surf, first service. They might make less sense. <laughs> If you were here in the first service and it didn't make sense, this hopefully will help. Hopefully will help. And I'm going to start where I ended. So I I ended the, the first service talking about this image from David Jones, who was a Welsh poet and artist in the early 1900s. And this is an engraving, actually a picture of an engraving. That shows Christ rising. And as I mentioned in the first service, this is remarkable for Christian iconography and art in that it shows Christ in the process of rising. Scripture does not do that. Scripture does not describe the moment of Christ rising. It simply says, he is risen. The tomb is empty, in a sense, in another sense it's not. He is present, in another sense he's not. The guards are asleep, overcome by what's happened, but no one in Scripture actually sees the moment of resurrection. And in most of Christian art and iconography, Christ is pictured as already risen, or the tomb is pictured as empty, right. but you, do, you rarely see Christ in the process of rising. But in this case, you see him rising, not yet risen, one foot still dead in the grave. Wow. Right? So the darkness is contained, it's behind him, It's still there, but a garden is sprouting around him. And you can see that his wounds are still bleeding, but they're also radiating glory. So the blood flows and the light shines. And he's in the process of standing. He's in the process of rising and moving away from the grave. And so what we're to imagine here is we're behind him, already awake, Adam and Eve, and all those, he has, he has plundered hell. And so all of those who are dead, who were left for dead, are behind him, and they're following him as, as he leads the triumph out. Right? This is the language Paul will use in Corinthians, that we are following him in triumph. He's on his victory march, and we're behind him. And we're seeing that march as it begins. Right? And he's carrying a banner, and those of you who read Latin, he's crowned with Alpha and Omega, those are the Greek... Characters And he's carrying a banner. That those of you who read Latin realize that that is a quote from Isaiah 63. That is asking, who is this who comes from Edom, who comes from Basra, whose clothes are red with blood? And we, we read the passage together this morning. I won't read it again. But I, I want to start by saying, the first thing you have to know about the king of this kingdom right, is that he wins his victory when no one is looking. He wins the victory alone, and he wins the victory by doing for his enemies what he wants his enemies to do for his friends. This this is where I want to begin what I hope is an explanation of what I preached in the first service. God does for his enemies what God wants his enemies to do for his friends. And God will only be able to do in your life what you're ready to do for God's enemies. So God does for his enemies what he wants his enemies to do for his friends. He will only be able to do in your life, you're his friends, but he can only do in your life what you're ready to do for his enemies. Those that you regard as beyond hope, beyond the pale, unforgivable, irredeemable, they are the measure of your openness to God's work in your life. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, and I'm getting ahead of myself a bit, I've been charged with talking about the kingdom coming. But later in this series, you'll talk about forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, or forgive those who've sinned against us as we forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. What's not being said in that prayer is that God will forgive you only after you've forgiven others. That's not the point. God does not reward you with forgiveness because you did well and forgave others. You can forgive only because you are already forgiven. But here's here's the truth. The measure of your openness to God's forgiveness of you is exactly the same as your measure of forgiveness to those who've wronged you and wronged God. If you're stingy with your forgiveness for others, God does not punish you by not forgiving you. That sin is its own punishment in that your stinginess makes you suspicious that God is stingy toward you. If you cannot forgive others, can God actually forgive you? If you forgive but hold resentment, does God forgive but hold resentment? If you love with reservation, you start to suspect that God loves with reservation. And so as you forgive, learning to love as you've been loved, The measure of your love for God's enemies turns out to be the ways in which God's love for you, God's friendship with you, overwhelms you. So there's there's no separation between what God's doing in your life and what you're doing in the life of those you regard as God's enemies. We'll say that one more time. There's no separation between what God is doing in your life and what you're doing for those you regard as God's enemies. This image here shows Christ rising, stepping into a garden, but notice the page is mostly blank. He's stepping out into an unfinished garden. We're talking about the kingdom of God, and as I said in the first service, there are two mistakes that Christians often make when they talk about the kingdom. One is they tend to talk about the kingdom individualistically. My soul is the kingdom, and what matters is my relationship to Jesus. Everyone else can go to hell. It's me and Jesus have our own thing going. And as long as I'm right with God, what matters if, it hap- if something bad happens to someone else? Right? This is what Hezekiah says. The prophet comes to him and says, because of what you've done, the kingdom will be taken away. And Hezekiah says, when? And he says, not in your lifetime. And Hezekiah says, Good. Good. And many of us have been indoctrinated in a Christianity that says all that matters is your soul and your relationship to God. Don't worry about anything else. And as I said in the first service, that is antichrist. Because God's work in your life is always inseparably bound up with what God is doing for others. The elect are elect for the sake of the non-elect. Why are you here this morning and your neighbors are not? Because God loves your neighbors. And he's brought you here to prepare you to care for them. He gathered you close to whisper in your ear a word he means them to hear. Wow. Yes. He's called you close because there's someone who's far away that he longs to bring close. So you are the servants that carry the water. The wedding is not for you. You remember in John 2, Jesus is a, guest, is a host at a wedding. He's, I mean, he's a guest at the wedding. He's the guest who brings the hospitality. He turns the water to wine. We, those of us who understand ourselves as Christians, we're not the bride and the groom. We're not the family invited to the wedding. We're just the servants who carry the water. God is not so much crazy about you as he is crazy about somebody you know. And if that doesn't hit you right, it's because you don't know the character of this God yet. You, You haven't yet caught the way this king kings. You haven't yet been infected with his spirit. So this page is blank around the garden that's beginning to sprout. And if we think about the kingdom solely in individualistic terms, then we simply think about this as a moment Jesus is doing for me. But there's another mistake that Christians make, as I said, and that is they think it's not individualistically, but collectively. In other words, the church is the kingdom, or worse, the nation is the kingdom. So we are the people of God, and they are the enemies of God. And the we is defined by church tradition, we Catholics, we Protestants, we Pentecostals, we Baptists, we Bible believers, we tongue talkers. We people of faith, we people who believe in miracles, we are the people of God, and those people, those who don't believe the Bible, those who don't walk in holiness, those who don't believe what we believe and live like we live, they are the enemies of God. That collective mindset thinks of the kingdom as our possession, right? The kingdom is mine, and the kingdom is ours, but that's not at all the character of this kingdom, but the kingdom of God, again, is for the sake of those who are not yet in the kingdom. Everything God does for the elect is because of God's love for the non-elect. He calls Abraham. What does he say to Abraham? I've chosen you. Out of all the peoples of the earth, I've chosen you. Why? Because I love you? No. He doesn't say, Abraham, I chose you because of all the peoples of the earth, you are the most beautiful, lovely, thoughtful. No. He says, I've chosen you to make you a blessing to all nations. You're going to carry the water, Abraham. The feast is for them. I want them to be drunk on the delight of my joy. I need you to carry the water. He says to Israel, I chose you out of all the nations of the earth. I didn't choose you because you were mighty, but because you were weak. I didn't choose you because you were great. I chose you because you were small. I didn't choose you because you were particularly beautiful, but in your ugliness, I desire to beautify all things. Paul tells the Corinthians, you've been chosen, but not many of you are wise. And by not many, I mean none at all. (laughs) Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are great, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Look around. (laughs) God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Look right here. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to bring to nothing the wisdom of the world for the sake of redeeming those who were enslaved to the powers of the world. The party's not for you. We just carry the water. And so he, he the one who's coming out of this tomb, is coming from Edom and from Basra, not stained with their blood but with his own. He gave them wine. He shed his own blood. And now he's coming back, coming back from what he's done for his enemies. And he's creating a new future. Now, there's a third mistake that Christians make when they talk about the kingdom. Either they're so focused on the individual, they forget about everybody else. Or they're so focused on heaven, they forget about the earth. Or the opposite. They're so earthly-minded, they're no heavenly good. They're not heavenly-minded enough to discern the good. Or they're thinking about us instead of them. The third mistake that Christians make when they think about the kingdom is they think about it as something God will do or something we bring about. It's I, in, in this way of thinking, the kingdom is either God's to do and it has nothing to do with me, right? which that leads to a kind of irresponsibility, a kind of neglect for what happens in the world, in which people say, Well, yes, it looks like there's a virus spreading around the world, but, I mean, if God wants to do something about it, he will. Now, you don't say that when you get up in the morning. You don't say, I don't need to brush my teeth. If God wants them to be clean, he'll brush them. (laughs) You don't say, well, I don't think I will use the bathroom this morning. If God wants to release urine from my body, he will do it. (laughs) You don't say, I don't think I'll eat today. If God wants me to be nourished, God will just... Digest my food for me. You don't say, I don't think I'll put on clothes today, but God wants me to be clothed, He will clothe me. Try that. Try try those things. (laughs) So when you say, I'm not gonna wear a mask because God will protect me. I'm not gonna worry about those things. God will protect me. You're assuming that there are things God does that don't require you to be responsible. And if we're talking about little things like masks or urination, then think about things like poverty or racism or war or corruption politically. There's a kind of Christianity, it's disease Christianity, that says, listen, if God wanted to do something about that, he would. The poor you have with you always, which is code for, I can't, I wash my hands of that responsibility. But Pilate washes his hands. Jesus washes the feet of those who betray him. That's the difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of our God. The kings of this world wash their hands of responsibility. What happens, happens. It is what it is. If God wanted to do something about it, he would do something about it. The problem's too big to deal with. But our God is a God who presses us into responsibility, who says, if you don't do it, It's not going to get done. This way of thinking, it infects us so deeply. And what it leads to, if we're not careful, is a reaction against it that puts all the burden on us. So if some of us are teaching, listen, if it's really important, God will do it. It doesn't matter what I do. Then over time, we start to realize, hey, it kind of matters what I do. But then we're tempted to think, everything depends on what I do and how well I do it. So then... If in the first case, it's all vertical and no horizontal, it's all God is going to act, it doesn't matter what I do. In the second case, God just becomes a metaphor for you doing what you want. And it becomes about you performing the kingdom of God. It becomes about you taking responsibility apart from what God is doing. And it's easy to make those mistakes. And this is a gross overgeneralization. Over but in general... Conservative Christians in America make the first mistake, and quote-unquote progressive Christians in America make the other mistake. Conservatives tend to say, listen, those big problems, racism, war, famine, disease, political corruption, that's out of our hands. All we can worry about is paying our tithes, going to church, reading our Bible, watching God TV or TBN or whatever it is where you get your nourishment, and, and God will take care of that other stuff. And what that leads to is a Christianity that is neither salt nor light. It's a Christianity that makes no difference for the people who live around you. This is a footnote to everything else I'm saying. But one of the things, if if you want to be grieved deeply, and I know some of you probably do, just read the history of revivals and what has happened to the people around the revivals. So it's one thing if we gather, you know, every week and we have revival, meaning we get together and sing a bunch of songs and people preach a bunch of sermons, and then the people around us have no sense of it, nothing changes on the streets, nothing changes in the courthouse, nothing changes in the hospital, nothing changes in the jail, then all we've done is enjoy something, but we've left no mark of God in the world. So that, that tends to be, and again, this is an overgeneralization, but that tends to be the conservative mistake. And on the other side, in reaction to that, you get a kind of Christianity that assumes, you know, what's God really going to do? You have to do it. You have to bring about this change. But what the gospel teaches is not that it's either God or you. It's God and you. It's your work becoming God's work. This is the way Jesus says it in John 9. We must work the works of him who sent me. We must work the works of him who sent me. So it's not your work, it's God's work. But you have to work God's works or they will not happen in the world. So I want to say this as bluntly as I can. The way you and I choose to leave today and live from this moment will shape what happens on the rest of that page. That garden either will spread because of the way we choose to live, it'll spread outside of New Life Midtown to your home and to mine, to our community, it'll reach into our courthouse and jails and into our prisons, it'll reach into orphanages, it'll reach into boardrooms, it'll reach into other communities, communities of other faiths, or it won't. And that isn't about what God's going to do while you do nothing. That is entirely about what God is going to do in what you do. Either you and I work the works of God or we don't. If we do, the kingdom can come. If we don't, the kingdom won't. At least not with us. Now, it may be true God raises up somebody else to do it. But if we want to participate, we have to live it out. We can't wait on God to do what God is going to do. God is waiting on us to do what we've been called to do, and his works will work in our working. Right. So, Colossians 1. Here we go. I'm about to just deluge you with scriptures. Colossians 1. If you've made it this far, you're safe. We're, we're through the bumpiest part of the ride. There was some turbulence at the beginning. Smooth flight from here on out. Colossians 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So let me just say here, again, the point is not that it doesn't matter whether or not we pray. That would be a a, a quote-unquote conservative mistake. That... Okay, I, I hate that you're sick, but I don't know if I should pray for you to be healed because I want God's will to be done. You hear the callousness in that? Well, if it's true of one of your neighbor, it's true of all of your neighbors. So Paul says, talking about the Colossians, I pray for you every day that you may be filled. Yes. But he's not saying, I'm talking God into doing something for you God wouldn't have done otherwise. We don't intercede, we don't pray for others because God is reluctant to be good to them. We don't come to God and say, God, I know you're not really into this, but this person is really sick and I'd like you to heal them. And God would be like, I don't know. No, God, really, you can do it, why don't you do it? (laughs) We don't pray to change God's heart toward people. We pray in order to participate in what God is doing for them anyway. If you're being moved to pray for someone, God is the one moving you. But he doesn't want to do for them what he wants to do for them without you. Because, again, what did I tell you? He wants to work in your life in a way that's perfectly matching what he wants to do in the life of his enemies. So he's going to include you in what he's doing. He doesn't have to, but that is who he is. He doesn't want to be God without you. He doesn't want to work his works apart from your working. He doesn't want to redeem them without your prayers for their redemption. He wants to include you in his providential work in the world. Because you're being included in the providential work is the way that he shapes you into his image. So when he moves you to pray for your enemies, you think you're praying because they desperately need God. In truth, you're praying because you desperately need God. You remember Peter and Cornelius. Peter's on the rooftop, it's about noon, and so he has a vision of food. Because that's how God works. (laughs) And a sheet is lowered three times, all kinds of unclean animals, and a voice says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter is religious enough to say, no, I've never done that, although he had done that. And at the end of it, he's sent on this mission to Cornelius, right? You remember the story. He comes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile whom God has noticed because he says, Cornelius' almsgiving and prayers have come up to me as a memorial. So now, the way we tell the story, Peter's the Christian. Cornelius is the center. Peter's the one who's bringing the good news to Cornelius. So everything is about what God is doing in Peter's life. But no, 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 no. Peter needs Cornelius much more than Cornelius needs Peter. Cornelius's prayers, his almsgiving, are already more Christ-like than Peter's own life is. So if you're a Christian here, You need to understand, like, the people around you, not only does God love them and so has called you near, they're more like God more often than not than you are. More often than not, there is more Christ-likeness in your non-believing neighbor than there is in you or me. Some people are scandalized by this. They come to church, they live with Christians, and they think, man, these Christians are not very Christ-like. Yeah, God knows that. That's why he called you to be Christian. You parents, you know what this is like. If you have a kid that's particularly troublesome, you keep them closest. The less you trust your kid, the closer they have to be to you. You are close to Jesus this morning because he doesn't trust you very much. Those other guys, he's not worried about them. He is worried about you. He is worried about me. So Paul says, pray, I pray, I pray for you to be filled up. Man, I'm not moving nearly quickly enough. (laughs) I'm praying so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord. Lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. As you bear fruit in every good work, remember that language, you bear fruit in every good work, and as you grow in the knowledge of God, may you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience. Now notice the juxtaposition. I want you to be filled up with God's knowledge. I want you to be empowered with his power so you can suffer. So you can endure with patience. The more powerful God is in your life, the more you can bear. Not the more you change, the more you can live with what cannot be changed. And so he's praying for them to have this power his glorious power, and may be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so that sounds accomplished, right? It is finished. But if you read the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, "'It is finished,' That's not the end of the gospel. There's a whole lot still to happen yet. So when Paul says, you have been transferred into the kingdom, that's the beginning, not the end. So the kingdom has come. You're in the kingdom. Now it begins. When Jesus says to the rich young ruler, go and sell all you have and then come and follow me, he's not saying, remember the rich young ruler's question is, what is the one thing I lack? I'm almost there. I'm 99.9% of the way there. What's that What's going to get me that last little bit? That last bump. What's it going to be? And Jesus says, "You're actually 0.000 of the way there. <laughs> Give away everything and we'll start at the beginning." So when you're transferred into the kingdom, you begin. You begin. And that's what we get in verse 24. Colossians 1.24. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Rub your eyes. Look again. There it is. I rejoice. I am in my sufferings. I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Hmm. What is this? What could this possibly mean? It is finished. God has done what he has done once for all. He's sat down at the right hand of the father. And yet, there is a way in which it's just begun. That's what this image that we were looking at shows us. He's rising, not yet risen. So Paul will say in Ephesians 4 that Christ has descended to the lower parts and ascended so that he can give gifts. Why? So we might be built up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. So here's what the New Testament teaches, and I don't have time to go through all of the passages, but this is what our scriptures teach us. Everything that happened to Jesus in his earthly sojourn now has to happen to the church in history. Everything that happened to him is complete. It's just getting started for us as his body. And so what Paul is saying is, I make up in my body what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, not in what he did outside Jerusalem on that cross. He did that alone. He did that for us. He did that and accomplished it in full and is seated at the right hand of the Father, his work finished. And because his work is finished, our work can begin. Because if you go back to the Gospel of John, the it is finished line is not some broad reference to the work. It's specifically to the project of creating a human being. God starts to make a human being and it goes wrong. He starts to mold clay into a pot and it's marred. The vessel is marred in the hands of the potter. So what does he do? He turns it again into the fire and cleanses it, reduces it to its essence and forms it again. But when the pot has finally been formed, that's not the end. That's the beginning. When when Jesus says, it is finished, he means humanity now is fully formed. This is what it means to be human. Now we can get started with what God meant to do when he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish this earth. The human project does not end on Easter. It begins on Easter. This is why Sunday is not the last day of the week. It's the first day of the week. This is the eighth day, the day of new creation. We're just getting started. We're not at the end of history. We're at the beginning of history. We're not at the end of God's work in the world. We're at the beginning of God's work in the world. And he's forming a people generation after generation, across the generations, to be more and more like Christ so that the full measure of Christ can be seen in the world. And Paul says, the way that that happens is by my sufferings for you. And so I come to Jesus' teaching in my last few minutes, whatever those few count up to be. I said in the first service that there were six aspects of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom I wanted to name, and I rushed through them. I didn't explicate them at all, but let me, let me take a little bit of time and explicate what Jesus says about the kingdom. The first one is that the kingdom has already come and is yet to come. You don't have to turn there now, but if you were taking notes... Note Luke twenty-two twenty-nine. 29. Jesus is at the Last Supper. He's seated at the table, and he says to the apostles, I give you the kingdom that the Father has given me. Here it is. You are now kings. In Revelation, by the way, we see, the first thing we see is the one who's seated on the throne and the Lamb. Later in Revelation, we see the Lamb in the midst of the throne. Later, still in Revelation, he invites us to sit on his throne with him. So there's this greater and greater inclusion in the reign of God. So that God is giving more and more of his life to us. And so Jesus says to the apostles, here it is. Here's the kingdom. And I won't eat this meal with you again until I eat it in the kingdom. Hold on a minute. You just gave us the kingdom. And then you told us this meal won't happen again until the kingdom. It gets worse. So (laughs) two chapters later, the resurrection has happened. Two disciples are on their way home. They meet a stranger. And the stranger says to them, why are you upset? What are you upset about? And they say, have you not heard what has happened to Jesus? Now, I love this. They're talking to Jesus about the things that happened to Jesus. And Jesus is pretending not to know what has happened to him. (laughs) And by the way, every stranger you meet is Jesus. What you do to the least of these, you do to me. Anything you do to anyone else, you are doing directly to Jesus. Everyone, anyone, always. So they are two strangers, they're on their way, and they are two disciples on their way home. They meet Jesus, and he says, why are you upset? They explain themselves, and he responds with a rebuke. How foolish and slow of heart you are. So slowness of heart is about how you can't catch up to the revelation God is giving you. God reveals something to you, but your heart is too slow to catch it. And so he then tells them, he preaches a sermon from beginning to end of Scripture about himself. And what he says is, did you not know the Scripture says the Messiah must suffer in order to enter into his glory? And then they get to their house. Their hospitality saves them. They have no idea who this is. They simply are polite and say, come in. He comes in. He breaks bread and their eyes are open. As soon as their eyes are opened, he disappears, and they immediately run back to Jerusalem because they realize who it is. But here's the striking thing. What did he told the disciples at the Lord's at the Lord's table? I will not eat or drink this meal with you again until we eat and drink it in the kingdom. Now he sits down at the meal. He breaks the bread but doesn't eat it. So are we in the kingdom or are we not? Well, the meal has started, but we're not to eating it yet. And this this juxtaposition of what's already true and not yet true is everywhere in Scripture. So the kingdom has already come, and it's not yet here. So if you go to Acts 1, after all of that, Jesus takes 40 days to teach his apostles about the kingdom of God. And I love, I love their response to this. They're just like I am as a student. So Jesus teaches them everything about the kingdom of God, and this is their first question. So are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right, so he's, he's told them everything about what he intends to do, and their question shows that they haven't even started to begin. They're slow of heart. They haven't caught up to what he's saying. And what he says is, it's not for you to know when the kingdom is coming, but you shall receive the Spirit. So is the kingdom here or not? Yes and no. It's here. It's coming here. It shall be here. All of that is true at the same time. And you can't say it at all if you don't say all of it. Is the kingdom here? Yes and no. Is the kingdom coming? No, it's here. Yes, it's also coming. And you can't say any of it if you don't say all of it. And if your Christianity emphasizes one or the other... You will distort the image of Christ. You will distort the image of Christ individualistically or collectively. You'll turn the church into the nation or the nation into the kingdom or Christ into Pilate or Christ into Caesar. Like, you will distort the image of God. You have to say all of that or none of it. Second thing. I won't take as long on each one. The second thing is it is a gift and it must be earned. Look at Luke 12. Luke 12, 31, and 32. He's just listed all of the things of life, all of these things, and he's told them not to worry about it. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. He says, verse 31, instead, oh, so verse 30, for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things. And your father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom. Strive for his kingdom. The kingdom suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Well, which is it? Do I strive for it, or is it given to me? Does he do it, or or do I do it? Is he waiting on me, or am I waiting on him? Yes. The gift is a gift. can't be earned. But you won't be able to recognize the gift it is until you've earned that recognition. And you earn that recognition by striving to enter into the kingdom you're already in. And if you can't hold all that together, then you haven't yet caught the mind of Christ, the mind of the Spirit. That's going to require you to think about Jacob and Esau, Pharaoh and Moses, the Jews and the Gentiles. You you can't choose one thing. He's going to require you to hold it all together. So you strive to enter the kingdom. As you're striving, you're discovering this is all gift. You obey, and what you discover in your obedience is your obedience was nothing but the grace of God at work in your life. Your obedience and submission to God turned out to be nothing but God serving you. But you can only learn that as you obey. Deny yourself and do what he wants, and what you discover is you were doing what you wanted all along, but were too deceived to know it. God never requires anything of you that you don't really want to do. You just don't know it yet. He does not impose his will on you. He requires obedience of you so you can discover what you really want anyway. You just don't know it yet because sin has blinded your mind. It's deceived your heart. And this is why those who obey worship. If you obey and on the other side of it, you're thinking, why don't the rest of these idiots obey? That wasn't obedience. (laughs) If you obey and on the other side of it, you're like, God, thank you for requiring that of me. Because I would have thought I was doing this. This is what Paul says, right? Paul says, the life I live, I don't live anymore. It's Christ living in me. So your obedience turns out to be his obedience in you, but you can only see that after you've chosen to obey. So, third, this kingdom is of and for the least, but requires the greatest. And I won't read it now for the sake of time, but if you go to Matthew 1 and read 1 to 20, Matthew 5, 1 to 20, you'll see Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom. And he ends that little homily by saying, Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you if you have nothing and if you suffer anyway. That's the, the kingdom belongs to you. And then he ends later by saying, Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, or you cannot enter the kingdom. Which is it? Is it, do I receive the kingdom because I have nothing and do nothing? Yes. Do I receive the kingdom because I obey to the full? Yes. And you, again, have to say all of that. Fourth, the kingdom comes suddenly, unmistakably, and slowly and secretly. It's the lightning bolt, it's an earthquake. It's a roar of thunder, and it's yeast in the loaf. It includes five. The kingdom includes everyone and excludes many. It includes everyone and excludes many. And then six, it brings healing to those who are without and suffering to those who are within. We're going to look at two more passages, and I'm going to be done. But this is one of the ways in which you can discern whether or not the Christianity that's being given to you bears the image of Christ are the image of some other king. If the Christianity that's been offered to you is that God will bless you at the expense of others, it is false. It's blasphemously false. If you are being given a gospel that says God will redeem others through your participation in his intercession, that's true. Everything depends on what does the gospel you're hearing say about the people who are furthest from God? What does the gospel you're hearing say about those who seem to be most estranged from God? Because if it says about them that we must, it, we must stop them, whatever we do, whatever we have to do, we have to stop them from destroying what is ours. That's not the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of this world. It's the kingdom of Caesar masquerading as the kingdom of Christ. It's Christianity as a worldly power, using the language of Scripture to hide its real intentions. But the goal of the kingdom of God is the redemption of those who are in Edom. As I told you in the first service, Esau, Edom, Basra, this is the most wicked place imaginable. And where does God go to win his victory? Into identification with those who are most wicked. I am found by those who do not seek me. He loves us while we are still sinners. Those who are farthest from him are the first to enter the kingdom. Jesus says this over and over and over again. The kingdom is for little children, prostitutes, tax collectors, everybody but you and me. You and I are too good to enter this kingdom. That's why God has to keep us close. Because it's the good ones, it's the good kids that are up to things that are deceitful. Jesus tells this parable about a father who has two sons. Not the prodigal story, but another. The father says to his sons, I'm going to go and work in the field. And one says, I'm going with you, dad. And the other one says, no, I'm sleeping in. Which one actually goes? The one who says he won't. Jesus tells a parable about the soils. The farmer throws the seed. Which is the first seed to spring up? The shallow. Soil gives rise to this quick fruit. And this is the the hard truth. Those who respond quickest to God and who say their yes quickly are never truly faithful. They're manipulating God. They're using their obedience. They're using their morality. They're using their faithfulness to leverage God's blessings. The son who stays home is the son who's furthest from the father's heart. The elder son doesn't leave to the far country because he thinks he can manipulate the father. He doesn't have the courage to do what he wants to do. What he wants to do, what he fantasizes about doing is wasting his money on prostitutes. That's why he accuses the younger son of doing it, even though the Bible doesn't say the younger son did that. And those of us who are good, we're the problem. That's why God has us close. We're the ones who think we need to leverage our goodness to win God's favor. This is why when something goes wrong in our life, we're angry. How could you let this happen to me? We see pictures of starving kids on the other side of the world, we're not angry. We see bodies dead in the street, we're not angry. We hear about unjust judgments, we're not angry. We get angry when something happens to us if you're angry about what goes wrong in your life and not angry about what goes wrong in others' lives, you don't know Jesus yet. You're still using your goodness to manipulate God for favor. That's why he's got you close. Because eventually it's going to click, and you're going to realize, oh, it's the the one who's closest who's furthest away. It's the one who says yes who really means no. It's the one who's good who's truly bad. It's the Jew who's unfaithful, not the Gentile. It's Jacob who's trouble, not Esau. It's not Pharaoh that's the problem, it's Moses. It's not David's enemies, it's David. Peter, the problem is not Cornelius, it's you. Our problem is not all of those people out there doing wicked things. The problem is you and me and everybody else whose butts are in seats this morning in churches in America. That's why God has us close. Because he needs us to see it. He needs us to see it. And so I'm showing you this. Matthew 9. Preaching's better because you don't quite know what I mean. Now I'm saying exactly what I mean, and you can't avoid it. Matthew 9. Matthew nine thirty-five. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, And proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, how have we heard this passage read every time we've heard it read? Mission, conversion, evangelism. Those people out there are suffering. The harvest is we go and get them and bring them in here. But if you've been in church more than a month, you know if you're talking about harassment and bad shepherding, it's more likely to happen in here than out there. You have wonderful pastors, but the Christian life, the churchly life, the life we're called to live together is painful. Part of what you have out there is you have the ability to kind of distance yourself from people you don't like. Jesus won't let you do that. I mean, you and I would never, ever in a thousand years connect if it weren't for Jesus bringing us to the same table. You're not here because you like me. You haven't even stayed through this talk because you like me? We're here because Jesus put us together. We wouldn't be friends if we met at school. We wouldn't just bump into each other and say, "Oh, my heart's burning within me. Let's let's spend some time together." We're together because Jesus needs his problem children close. And that means we're going to get hurt. We're going to get hurt in ways we wouldn't get hurt if we were making choices based on whether we like people or not. So he's not saying the harvest is go and get all those sinners and make them saints. The harvest is heal them of their woundedness. Don't make them like you. In any sense of that phrase, care for them. What it means to be a Christian is not to make other Christians. What it means to be Christian is to be Christ to others. Jesus didn't go into these villages and leave with more disciples than he came with. He came into these villages and drove death out and sickness out and lies out. He healed. He didn't convert. More often than not, in fact, Jesus won't let people follow him he calls a few most people he says go home if we're in the conversion business we're not doing the harvest the goal is not to make them come and be like us the goal is to bring the healing of god to them where they are Amen. what matter what christians what true christians leave in their wake are not more christians who look and sound like them what they leave in their wake is healing and wholeness and peace and justice and goodness and meekness and temperance and faithfulness what the sign that christ has been here is not that there are a whole lot of people worshiping jesus the sign that christ has been here is that there are a whole lot of people who are whole when jesus turns the water to wine if i'd been there if you had been there you know what we'd have done stop the party Hold on, everybody. Jesus did that. Jesus took this water, and he made it wine. And it's not alcoholic wine, don't worry. Jesus did that. We want to make Jesus famous. But that's not his glory. Go back and read John 2. The only people who know what Jesus did are the servants who carried the water. That is his glory. Jesus' glory is not a whole bunch of Christians allegiant to him. Jesus' glory is a whole bunch of humans experiencing the abundant life he means for them. The sign that we're the church is not everybody's a Christian. The sign that we're the church is that the justice of God is established. The goal is not to get everybody to be like me. The goal is to bring the goodness of God to bear on those who are not like me. And not so they will become like me. We're trying to convert people. We should be serving them. You're supposed to carry the water. That's it. Then, Luke 13, and I'm done. Now, this is Luke 13, 10. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over. And was quite unable to stand up straight. And I want you to go back for just a moment to that image, at least in your mind, of the Jesus who's not standing up straight yet. Because as long as anyone is bent over, Christ is not yet fully risen. As long as there's anyone anywhere who's been over, oppressed, Christ is still rising. She's been over and had been for 18 years. She's unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, which you don't need me to underline this. I'm not preaching. This is just teaching. But if I were preaching, I would just point out that he saw her. He didn't see her disease. He didn't see she was crippled. He saw her. He called her over. That seems rude. I mean, the woman's been over. Jesus, how about you you walk over to her? But here's the thing about Jesus' words. When he calls something, he calls it into being. When he calls her to himself, he's calling her into alignment. Calls her to himself and says, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. You are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. I, I, there's a lot I want to say, and I only have like 6.5 minutes to do it. But one of the things is, do you remember when Jesus says, you are salt and light? He says, let your light shine so that people may see your good works and celebrate your Father. Ministry that makes people see you Is not ministry. Ministry that makes you see good work and praise God is ministry. Jesus calls this woman to him, speaks freedom, touches her, and she doesn't say a word to him yet. She praises God. Because this is what it means to be Christ like. You direct attention to God, God directs your attention to them, you direct their attention to God. And then God directs their attention back to you. And so this woman stands up straight and praises God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. And there's so much about this I want to say. One is what makes you angry tells you the truth about your heart. The other is, notice how this synagogue leader passive-aggressively rebukes the woman by speaking to the crowd. This is another mark of wicked rulers. They speak to the mob instead of talking directly to anyone. He's mad at her, but he talks to the crowd. Jesus talked to her. So he says to the crowd, there are six days, come on those days to be cured. Now think about what this means. This means this woman for 18 years has been coming to the house of God to be told, don't come here for that. Don't come here for that. And Jesus, rightly, heals her. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey and lead it away and give it water? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be set free from the bondage on this Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. And he said, What is the kingdom of God like? Right in that moment, when he's healed this woman who should have been healed years and years and years ago, when he heals her and rebukes the leader and the crowd hears it and repents, he says, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what should I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. So I'm going to leave you with this. There's a movie about these monks who are in, I think it's Algeria, in an outbreak of terrorism, Islamic terrorism. They're the only Christians there. They live in a community of Muslims. And these terrorists are coming to kill these Muslims, and they'll kill the Christians too. And so the monks are trying to decide, should we leave or not? Can we leave and save ourselves? So they're all sitting around talking. And one of the women, one of the Muslim women, comes in from the kitchen, and she's listening to them talk. And the old monk looks up at her and says to her, calls her by name, and says, we are birds on a branch. We're about to fly away she says no 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 we are the birds and you are the branches stay with us this is a true story they did stay they did die that's what it means to be christian the kingdom of god is a tree in which the birds find rest god grows this tree because he cares about those birds your calling is to be there for them. Zacchaeus is the one he wants to go home with. You're the tree Zacchaeus climbs up to see Jesus. Jesus wants this bride and groom to have the party of their lives. So we ask you and me to carry the water. This is the kingdom of God. To do for others what God has not yet done for us. Because we love others the way God loves us. This is the kingdom of God. To do for others what God has not yet done for us. Because we love God. We love them the way God has loved us. This is what Moses says God says, I'm going to destroy all these people and start over with you. And Moses says, No, you won't. I don't want to be saved if they're not saved. Paul says, I would count myself accursed if I could bring my people in. This is the heart of Jesus, to care more about those birds out there than about your own branches. And when you do, God is alive in you. This is the wonder. As long as you're trying to experience God for yourself, you're not like God yet. But when you no longer are trying to experience God, you're no longer trying to get things from God, you're no longer trying to get God to bless you, you have